Good morning, family of God. It's good to be with you again. I see a lot of new faces, however, so I'll just give you a quick rundown on who I am. My name's Larry Boulinay. My wife is Rebecca, and we became members of Pacific Hope in 2006. And in 2007, I received a call, I believe, from the Lord to go to seminary, so we moved to Los Angeles, and that's where we live today. So... It's been about a year and a few months since I've been here, but it's good to see everyone again. Uh, Our text this morning is in Luke chapter 9, so if you would turn there with me. Luke chapter 9. I've entitled the message, The Sanctification of a Son of Thunder. Now, Sons of Thunder is a title that Jesus gave to two of his disciples, James and John. And he gave them that title because of their behavior. And we're going to get a glimpse of that today. We're going to see three incidents in the life of John and what we can learn from his example. So Luke 9, starting in verse 46, the outline is three points, self-exaltation, separation, and subjugation. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, everything in your word that you've given to us is for our instruction. And I pray that this morning, Lord, that we could get a glimpse into the life of John and what you've done in his life and how you transformed him from a son of thunder into the apostle of love. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak this morning, that you would use me as your vessel. Lord, that this would not just be a spiritual commitment, Lord, not just another thing that we do as a religious obligation, but that we would come to hear from you this morning. And so I pray you bless the hearers and bless me as I bring your word forth. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke 9, starting in verse 46. This is under the first point, self-exaltation. It says, an argument arose among them, that's the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. There's several times throughout the Gospels that we see the disciples arguing amongst themselves on who is the greatest. This is the first time chronologically that this is recorded. There's another passage I'm going to jump to real quick in Mark 10. And we have a little more specifics on on who's in this discussion. In Mark 10.35 it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, there they are, the sons of thunder, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. This is what they're arguing among themselves. Matthew includes that their mother was involved. So mom's in there asking Jesus if they can sit on either side of him in his kingdom. And back in Luke 9, if you back up a little bit, 
We heard it this morning, Ryan read it. You have the scene of the Mount of Transfiguration. So in 9, uh, 28, Jesus takes Peter, John, and James up to the mountain. You remember what happens there? His glory is revealed. They see him speaking with Moses and Elijah. And so, I imagine they come down from the mountain off this high. Here's these three inter, inner circle disciples. And yet, they know in a monarchy of a king, he's got two appointed co-rulers with him. One on his right and one on his left. And there's three of them. So here come James and John, I'm imagining, getting together and saying, you know, there's only two spots for co-rulership in the kingdom, but there's three of us. Let's go to Jesus, and we'll see if we can take those two, two spots before Peter gets in there. And so, here they are arguing amongst themselves, who is the greatest? Now, right before this argument, in every gospel, the gospels are not always in chronological order. Sometimes, like in Luke, they're gathered together, the events, by themes. But in this case, every gospel has this preceding account. It's got the Mount of Transfiguration, and then it's got Jesus foretelling of his death. So look a couple verses, again, up above where we're at. Look in verse 44 of Luke 9. He says, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So here's Jesus, the Lord Jesus, come into the world to die for man's sin. He's telling them, I'm going to be taken away and they're going to kill me. He doesn't say it in this gospel, but the other two gospels. He says, wicked men are going to put me to death. And instead of them just overwhelmed and shocked, they're like, I'm not really sure what he's talking about. By the way, Andrew, were you on the mountain with Jesus? Because I just was. It was awesome. They're arguing about who's the greatest. I believe there's much that we can learn from these men because we do the same thing. You see, it says that it was concealed from them. They did not understand it, and it was concealed from them. Why was it concealed from them? I believe two reasons. One, their theological presuppositions. In other words, their theology did not involve a dying Messiah. Their theology was, the Messiah comes, he sets up his kingdom, conquers Rome, and we're going to rule and reign with him. Okay, so that's the first one. They had their own theology already worked out, and that wasn't part of it. And the second one was the rivalry among them. So God actually concealed this from them, this, this, this deep spiritual truth. He kept it from them. Why? Because they could have done damage with that. You don't give weapons to a child. My son Christian's almost two. I don't give him a fork and a knife to eat. I give him this plastic spork-looking thing that's all curved so he doesn't hurt himself. And so God actually conceals from the disciples this truth because they couldn't take it. They weren't mature enough to receive it. 
And beloved, we are the same way sometimes. We are like the disciples. We think we have everything figured out sometimes. Uh, God doing a particular thing might not work with our theology. So it might be concealed from us. Or God might not show us profound, deep truths because we use it for our own glory, to exalt ourselves because we have a propensity to do that. Look how spiritual I am. Come over to my house for a Bible study. In, in reality, you're thinking, so I can show you how much of the Bible I know. You see, we, we have these sinful impulses to glorify ourselves. Self-exaltation. And this is a temptation in our circles, beloved. We have a high view of Scripture. We believe every word of God is inspired. We believe the teaching of the word is the center of our worship service. And then we see other churches who don't have that high a view, and we sort of puff ourselves up. Look how spiritual I am, how reformed I am. But there's a connection in Scripture between humility and sight. In fact, Jesus said to the Pharisees, the most religious people of the day, he says, because you say you see, you remain in your blindness. Or, the Apostle Paul said, 1 Corinthians 8, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. So Jesus shows them this with a living illustration, as he often does. He, he takes a child in verse 47. He says, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. Now, that might not mean a lot to us today. We, he picks a child and says, whoever receives him receives me. Children are almost worshipped in our culture. Back then, they were not highly esteemed. They were not old enough to study the law of God. They did not have any wisdom to add to the family or community. And they often died when they were young. They couldn't work. They couldn't bring in income. In fact, uh, <clears throat> a rabbi interacting with a child was almost scoffed. In the Babylonian Talmud, which is a rabbinic writing around the t- prior to the time of Jesus, but around the time of Jesus, this is what it says, destroys a man. This is what the rabbis wrote that will destroy a man. It says, morning sleep, midday wine, spending time with common people, and chattering with children will all destroy a man. But Jesus was not like the other rabbis, was he? So he brings this child, and he says, do you want to be great in my kingdom? You receive the least among you. So by becoming the least among you and receiving the least among you, you become great. It's the opposite of the world, always. It's upside down paradigm from the world. It's the opposite of self-exaltation. It's humbling yourself. It's serving the least among you. That's greatness in the kingdom. Not self-exaltation. Not arguing who's the greatest. But it's being the least. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 3, 
Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So, signs of spiritual immaturity. The first sign is self-exaltation. The second is separation. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on this point. Look at verse 49. Here's John again. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. So John sees someone casting out demons, not one of the twelve, but probably a disciple of Jesus. And in his mind, because he was not part of their group, his ministry was to be stopped. Now what's so hilarious about this is, if you read up and look at verse 37, when the disciples were coming down the mountain, it says, On the next day when they'd come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried, Teacher, I beg for you, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And then go down to verse 40. He says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So, the disciples couldn't cast out the demon, and yet John sees a man casting out demons, plural, so either multiple people or just one. That was a real tough one. And he wants to put a stop to it because he's not in their crowd. He wants to stop him. And beloved, I wonder how often we do the same thing because of our immaturity, because we've discovered some wonderful truths in Scripture, and yet we run into other Christians who have not discovered those truths, and we sort of create a dividing line. And and, and we, 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 we break apart in groups, and, well, is he with us? Is he not with us? What do you believe? What about this? You get a group of Reformed people together who do not know each other, and within five minutes you know where you disagree. And you kind of already start dividing and making these little segments. J.C. Ryle notes, In every period of church history, thousands of Christians have spent their lives copying John's mistake. They've labored to stop every man who will not work for Christ in their way from working for Christ at all. They've imagined in their petty self-conceit that no man can be a soldier of Christ unless he wears their uniform and fights in their regiment. When we first moved to Los Angeles, uh, the only Christian radio station I knew of was K-Wave. I came out of a Calvary Chapel-type background. So I've got these Calvary guys on all the time. I didn't realize there was other stations up there. But I would listen to them, kind of like the Pharisees would listen to Jesus, looking to trap him in his words. So I wasn't listening to these men for edification. I was listening to them so I could kind of exalt myself in my own thinking. Say, that's not right. That's wrong. And so forth. I would, I, I would think, well, I can't learn anything from this man. He's not even a Calvinist. I mean, come on. What am I supposed to learn from him? So, having this immaturity and a lot of knowledge created in me what Jesus came and rebuked in the first century. I'm not saying that you have to 
appreciate every teacher in the church the same way. But what I am saying is, we have to be mindful of our propensity to divide ourselves from other parts of the body. And, he, and God, in his wisdom, has given us a diversity within the body. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 12. And he has not given us teachers so we can use them against one another or uh, divide up into our little groups. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul addresses this very thing as a sign of spiritual immaturity in the Corinthian church. Listen to this. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? And then he says this, For one says, when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Now there is an air of wisdom in the zeal for Christ and for his truth that makes you want to separate. There's some wisdom there, it seems, on the surface. Well, I, I, I have discovered this high view of God, and this group over here does not have as high a view of God, so I'm going to stick with the people that do have the high view of God, and basically, in some form, separate from those who don't have that high view of God. And it seems like that's the wise thing to do. And I'm not talking about false doctrine, just for clarity. I'm not talking about people who deny the Trinity. I'm not talking about guys like Rob Bell who come out and say there is no hell and he's got all sorts of issues and he's been on a slippery slope for years. I'm not talking about clear men that we should stay away from. I'm talking about blood-bought, born-again, family-of-God believers within the church abroad. Recently, I heard a brother mention, uh, he said, I've moved beyond John MacArthur. You know, John MacArthur is the preacher. And because he's adopted a different theological persuasion. So he says, I've moved beyond him. No, you haven't. God did not give you teachers in the church for you to move beyond. He's given you teachers in the church to learn from. Doesn't mean you have to listen to all of them. Doesn't mean you have to appreciate all of them the same. But the flesh comes in and says, I don't need him anymore. Paul makes the entire argument in in 1 Corinthians 12. We don't go around hacking off our arms and legs and fingers and toes thinking we don't need the body. We need the body. I don't agree with everything Chuck Smith teaches. When I listen to K-Wave, But here's what the Lord has done in my life. And this is just a testimony of God's grace. So the Lord had a period of about two years where he just humbled me. Humbled, 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 lower and lower and lower. I'm still on that pathway, by the way. Praise God, and so are you. So now I listen to K-Wave. I'm listening to Chuck Smith. And I'm learning from him. Why? Because... I'm not on that high horse anymore. The Lord has brought me down. 
and I don't agree with everything, but what I do now is I hear him, some, him, hear him teach something I think is not right. I pray for him. Oh, Lord, I so love the truth of your sovereignty. And I, I pray that you would give Chuck, and I'm just using his as an example, a vision of this sovereignty, that he would see it clearly and gloriously. And Lord, if there's anything in my view of it that's wrong, please correct me. And so he's changed my heart just enough to where instead of sitting there and scoffing at another man's teaching, I ask the Lord to bless him. And it totally changes everything. It's hard for me to say something bad about him now. If someone's talking about, Chuck Smith said this. I'm praying for the guy now, so it's like I'm kind of connected with him in the spirit. I want to see him grow in certain areas. And I believe that's the Lord's heart for us. That we would be builders of the body. And Paul goes on in that same chapter. He says, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. You know what that means? John MacArthur is yours. R.C. Sproul is yours. Chuck Smith is yours. Chuck Swindoll is yours. I'm not saying you have to agree with all these men the same. What I am saying is, he's given teachers to the body, not for us to pick and choose and draw lines in the sand and say, I'm with him, but for our edification. And when we get to a place of humility where we realize we can learn from any one of God's teachers, changes everything. Just for clarity's sake, I'm not talking about people who teach false doctrine. I just don't want to be misunderstood. I'm talking about members of the body of Christ. I've seen this humility displayed in the life of the church where I'm at. Uh, The Lord led my wife and I to a wonderful church. They've been together for... Most of the people in that body have been together for 20 or 25 years. It's evident. The love in that congregation, the maturity of the eldership. And they're a good, reformed church. But they just, a few weeks ago, laid hands and added a deacon to their team. And guess what? He's an Arminian. And he's now a deacon in their church. Why? You say, well, wait a second. Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. No, you don't understand. They're not divided because they're in Christ. And they noticed in this man, he is full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, meets the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. And so they appointed him as a deacon in the church. He's a servant. He loves the Lord. Can you imagine on Judgment Day standing before the Lord? Lord, but you don't understand. He was not following with us. Do you see? Now, we, we have discussions about theology with him. Good-naturedly, of course. I want to persuade him. But it never gets to a point of anger or separation. I want you to listen. Oh, sorry, that's in a minute. (laughs) 
I still want you to listen. (laughs) And the reason is, beloved, no one has perfect doctrine. Did you know that? Nobody does. We see through a glass darkly, Paul said. So we're trying to make sense of the Word of God. And we're coming to different conclusions, and we're building a framework for our theology. Totally fine. But it becomes not fine when we take the weapons that, we're, that God has given us to fight against the flesh and the world and Satan, and we turn them on other believers and act like now they're the enemy. Can you see how tricky Satan is? And to illustrate this, imagine if you lived, let's say 100 B.C., Okay, you're Old Testament saints, you have the scriptures. And you and another member of the covenant community of God are arguing about scripture. And one of you says, you don't understand. Jesus, or or the Savior that's coming into the world, is going to be a suffering Messiah. And so that's represented by a blue circle, okay? You're the suffering Messiah theology group, okay? And you have a friend, and you argue, argue with each other constantly. And he argues and says, no, the Messiah is going to be a reigning king. And he's going through and showing you all the scriptures, and you end up being at war with each other, Because the other person just can't see what you're trying to show them. But what's the truth in reality? Jesus was a suffering Messiah and a reigning king. So blue circle, yellow circle, objective truth was a green circle. So you see, they both saw something. They both saw a part of this picture And yet, they didn't have the whole picture. Now think about your favorite theological arguments. You do not have perfect knowledge in that. And I'm not saying don't have theological arguments. I love theology. I love it. But God didn't give us theology to destroy our brothers, is the point. God didn't give us truth so so we could say, But Lord, I'm going to stop his ministry because he's not one of us. Because we're going to be humbled someday. I think my remote control died. Nope. Ray Ortland, who's a pastor and writes a blog, had a writing I want to share with you called Truly Reformed. I want you to listen to this. This is so good. Truly reformed, he says, I believe in the sovereignty of God, the five points of Calvinism, the solas of the Reformation. I believe that grace precedes faith in regeneration. Theologically, I'm reformed. Sociologically, I'm simply a Christian, or at least I want to be. The tricky thing about our hearts is that they can turn even a good thing into an engine of oppression. It happens when our theological distinctives make us aloof from other Christians. But no matter how well argued our position is biblically, if it functions in our hearts as an addition to Jesus, it ends up being a form of legalistic divisiveness. 
I love this. This is so good. My Reformed friend, can you move among other Christian groups and really enjoy them? Do you admire them? Even if you disagree with them in some ways, do you learn from them? If your Reformed theology has morphed functionally into divisive, into divisiveness, the remedy is not to abandon your Reformed theology. The remedy is to take your Reformed theology to a deeper level. Let it reduce you to Jesus only. Let it humble you. Let this gracious doctrine make you a fun person to be around. The proof that we are Reformed will be all the wonderful Christians we discover around us who are not Reformed. Amazing people, heroic people, blood-bought people, people with whom we are eternally one in Christ alone. Jesus' response to John's desire for separation in verse 50, he says, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. The picture that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 12 of the body of Christ is a beautiful picture. If you've ever stubbed your toe or had an injury in any part of your body, it affects everything, doesn't it? And so that's the point. And that's what Jesus is saying. If he's part of us, then there there is no division. Some parts are weaker. But we're to encourage them. You know, Jesus prayed a high priestly prayer in John 17. And his prayer for us was not that we would all agree theologically. His prayer was not that we would all understand the sovereignty of God in the same way. What was his prayer for us? That we would love one another. What wisdom in that. I will even go as far as to say God has ordained that we not all believe the same way. I'm going to read you out of uh, 1 Corinthians 11. This is the part where the Corinthian church, they were divided, they'd get together for the Lord's Supper, and it was a disaster. They weren't caring about each other. Some would show up and you know, be full. Others were starving and then getting drunk, and it was just a mess. He said, it's better when you don't even get together. That's how bad the church was. It's worse when you get together than when you don't. But listen to this. This is so fascinating. He says, In the first place, when, I, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I'm going to read that last part again in case you missed it. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, I used to think, okay, who are the genuine ones? Well, those who have the best theology, of course. We're going to stand out as just superior. That's not it entirely. And he goes on 
in chapter 13 to explain who the genuine one is. Who are the genuine ones? The genuine one is patient and kind. Does not envy or boast. Is not arrogant or rude. Does not insist on his own way. Is not irritable or resentful. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The genuine one bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is the genuine one. Builds up the body, sees a weakness, and and tries to support it instead of factions. We are to show ourselves approved, beloved. But showing ourselves approved is not to puff ourselves up, right? It's to build up the body. And it's an interesting picture. Death to the individual self builds up the whole. We're all part of Christ. And as each individual part of the body is dying to its, his self or herself, it's actually building up the corporate body. I used to think the peak of the mountain, the peak of the Christian life, was good theology. And beloved, I love theology. I love it. But it's not the peak. You know what the peak of the mountain is? Christ-likeness. Theology is a vehicle to get us there. Theology gives us a picture of God. And from that picture, we know God, we can understand Him, we can grow in our understanding of him but it's to transform us to be like him and oftentimes spiritually speaking we're like Peter we pull out our sword and hack off ears left and right thinking that we're doing God a service so self-exaltation separation and finally subjugation I had to find another S word. (laughs) It actually fits quite well, though. Subjugation is to conquer or to put someone under you. Under control. Verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, there's John again. There's John and James, the sons of thunder. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But but he he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So Jesus is on his journey to the cross. They're up in Galilee, and they need to head down to Jerusalem in Judea. And you see on the map there what's in between those two, Samaria. And there was such a racial hatred between Jews and Samaritans that often Jews would spend two extra days just to go around that piece of land so they didn't have to meet with any Samaritans. This came about because the Assyrian invasion In 722 BC, God judged the northern kingdom and he sent the Assyrians to judge them. And they basically took them into captivity out of the land. Not everybody, though. Those that left behind, 
were co uh, procreating with the nations around them, these pagan nations that God told the Jews to never procreate with. So they had this sort of half-Jew, half-pagan breed called Samaritans. And the Jews hated them because they were not the pure people of God. They rejected Jerusalem as the proper place to worship. So Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem right away. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. In seminary, I had to write a paper on the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, but it's the, the line of the Samaritan tradition. And it's virtually the same with the exception of all the places are changed. So, Abraham did not offer his son on Mount Moriah. It was Mount Gerizim. Uh, all the festivals, everything that had to do with the location, they, put it, they changed it and put it in Samaria. So they had their own little Bible, their own community. And they did not like the Jews either. And so James and John, in their zeal for the Lord, they ask him, do you want us to call down fire and consume these enemies of God? And this is probably based on the first couple verses in chapter 9. Jesus sends the twelve out and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So they've seen some miraculous things happen through them. And I think they get a little cocky. And they want to destroy their enemies. And in their zeal, they forgot. I mean, they were with Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. He summarized the law as, love your, love your go- Lord God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. But they didn't see the Samaritans as their neighbors. In fact, the next chapter, Jesus teaches that parable of the Good Samaritan. But we too, as the people of God, can be guilty of a religious zeal that leads men to sinful acts in a spirit of persecution. There's one famous story uh, when Gandhi, living in Calcutta, was going to go to a Christian church. He'd heard about the teachings of Christ. He thought he would look into it for himself. And he walks up to the church and the elder is out front and says, you're not allowed in here. Well, well, I've come to worship with you. And he says, no Kafirs in here. And a Kafir is a racial slur, derogatory term. And he told them, only high caste Indians and whites are allowed. Now, it's very possible that this person wasn't a Christian at all. But it's also possible that in his religious zeal, he saw them, he saw this Indian as an enemy, a racial thing. And we're not exempt from that because in America, 150 years ago, all the churches were segregated. You, there, were, there were no mix of races within the churches. And unfortunately in the South, there's still some of that today. But we're not beyond that. And then Gandhi was famous for saying, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Should never be. And so Jesus' response is, he turned and rebuked James and John. Some traditions, manuscript traditions add, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. That's what apparently Jesus might have said. 
it's in later, later manuscripts. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Jesus' mission was not to come and destroy his enemies. That's coming someday. But we are in a period of grace. The message of Christ is, come to Christ. Come, God is offering you forgiveness. You can be reconciled to God. That's our message. And it's not done through fleshly means. It's not done by subjugation. We don't conquer communities for Christ. That's the, that's the, that's the gospel of Islam. Ours is a spiritual battle. And it always bothers me when I hear of someone blowing up an abortion clinic or something like that because he hates the sin of abortion and he's a Christian. We're not called to do that. The weapons of our warfare, Scripture says, are not carnal, but they're mighty through God. So the mission of Jesus was not to destroy, but to save. Same gospel writer, or John, as he eventually goes to write a gospel, writes this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 12:47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So, that's what we have in John. John was given to self-exaltation. He was given to separation. And he was given to a desire of subjugation to conquer his enemies. Well, whatever happened to these sons of thunder? Well, Acts 12, 2 tells us that James was killed by the sword. He was the first of the twelve to be put to death. So we don't have much on James. We don't know. We can't see the finished product. But we do with John have a glimpse into his life because he, he wrote a gospel, three epistles, and the book of Revelation. Did John finish his race as someone who delights in self-exaltation? Listen to this. Within the Gospel of John, he refers to himself by name zero times. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved four times. Now that wasn't to say, I, he loved me and he didn't love the other disciples. No. He, Jesus loved all the disciples. He's just basically saying, one of the disciples. Four times. In, in John 13, 23, he calls himself one of his disciples, just anonymous, one of the disciples. 21, 23, this disciple. 21, 24, this is the disciple. <clears throat> He's not exalting himself. He's not saying, this is the great apostle who was chosen by Jesus personally to be in his inner circle. How about his epistles? Is he exalting himself? First John, no introduction, just starts writing. Second John and third John, he refers to himself as the elder. In Revelation, he calls himself by name, but then he says, a slave of Christ. He also, in 
in one chapter 1 verse 9 calls himself your brother and partner your brother and partner in building up the kingdom it's not putting himself on a higher level than anyone in fact in revelation 19:10 and 22:8 he tries to worship an angel twice twice is that humiliating? I can understand one time. It's like, Lord, sorry, I didn't know. The second time, and he has to record this. And he leaves it in there. How about separation? Listen to what he writes in his first epistle. This is John the Apostle, the son of thunder. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 1 John 4.20 If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is John, the son of thunder. How about subjugation? Is John still trying to put his enemies under his feet? Listen to this in Acts 18, or Acts 8.14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Now just pause there for a second. Peter was given the keys of the kingdom. He preached at Pentecost, which released the Jews unto salvation. He preached at... uh, Acts chapter 10 to the Gentiles and the Lord saved them and here in Acts chapter 8 so Jews, Gentiles and now in between the Samaritans and God has John go with them not just Peter John's there now I don't think that's just an accident so he sent to them Peter and John who came down verse 15 and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, this is verse 25, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The half-breeds. Here they are preaching to them the good news of Jesus Christ. John, he sounds like Jesus, doesn't he? If you read through his writings, doesn't he just sound just like Jesus? He's known as the Apostle of Love. So how does one become, go from being a son of thunder to the Apostle of Love? This is where we're headed. This is our goal. This is your goal. Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. And how do we get that? Death to self. Why is John different? from the time we saw earlier to the time at the end? Well, he received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But his life was a process of dying to himself to where at the end of his life, Jesus was the controlling agent within him. You see, I think we're misguided in our thinking about sanctification. We think God is building something great within us. Get some more theology here, more experience here, more life situation here, more trials here. But he's not building us up. It's the opposite. He's breaking us down. He's tearing us down. 
We have the Holy Spirit. We have God within us. What's hindering God from being magnified through us? Well, it's you and me. So God is cutting us down year after year, chipping away. And the end result is our sanctification. We're in this process. So which part of John's life do you resemble most? Are you a son of thunder? Do you separate and exalt yourself and cry down fire on your enemies? Or are you the gospel, or are you the writer of the, the apostle of love who is building the body, building the church, encouraging others, sees a weakness, goes and build up and not separate? And if you say, well, maybe I'm somewhere in between. Yeah, we all are. And we can go to the Lord, Jesus, who bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might be made like him. And you can go to him and take that to him. And he loves you. And he wants you to take those things to him. He's patient. He was patient with John. And he's patient with you. Think about John. All these things, constantly doing these things. And Jesus was patient with him, and he's patient with you as well. And he loves you. And he who began a good work in you will what? He will complete it, won't he? He will complete it. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful, Lord, that you love us enough to where you will not leave us where we are. Lord, we, we're given over to arrogance. We're given over to selfishness. We love to exalt ourselves, Lord. There's a Pharisee within every one of us. I'm convinced of that. But you call us to be your own and you're patient with us and I thank you that you are taking us on this, on this journey, Lord, and that someday... Hopefully, we will begin to resemble you and resemble, even just as we saw in John's life, the transformation that you've made through him. So, Father, just bless us, Lord. Help us. Your word says that you remember that we are but flesh. Help us, Lord. We are weak. And we look to you as our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.